Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, of course, we've got some good news and some feats of strength, but the main portion of today's episode is all about research. We've got a big research roundup segment to get you all caught up on recent research in the fields of exercise science and sports nutrition. The topics we cover include optimal protein intake, essential amino acids, meal timing, lactate, the relationship between sleep and hunger, and an update on muscle memory. On top of that, Greg also discusses a a brand new study that suggested that adding strength phases to your training may promote greater hypertrophy. And this study has gotten a lot of attention. It's been discussed a lot in the evidence-based fitness world, but there are some important details to consider about that study before you draw conclusions on the topic. Finally, to play us out, Greg and I discussed some major food controversies, some of which have very greatly upset me. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only host, Eric Trexler, but today I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? I am doing well. Um, I want to start out with some intro uh, material, some announcements here. First of all, thank you sincerely to all of our new mass subscribers. We had a lot of people sign up to mass during our big Black Friday sale, uh, which is awesome. It allowed us to raise a lot of money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And it's really exciting to have a lot of new faces in the mass community. And on the topic of communities, uh, be sure to join our Stronger by Science Facebook group and our subreddit. Uh, Those are some nice online communities where you can talk about Stronger by Science stuff, talk about fitness and science and and all the good stuff. In addition to that, be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Um, Today, we've got a big research roundup. We're going to talk about a bunch of new studies, and you get uh, that type of content when you sign up for, for the mailing list. We like to send out little research updates and uh, brief, concise summaries with some useful tips. So uh, if you want to join the Facebook group, the subreddit, or the mailing list, I'm going to include the information for all that in the uh, show notes for today's episode. Um, now, before we get into the content for today, obviously Thanksgiving was a couple weeks ago, and uh, you know it's a good time to reflect on what you're thankful for. And, and I know I personally am very thankful for the opportunity to build incredible wealth Um, and and that's really been provided by BulkSupplements.com. So if you go to BulkSupplements.com and you use the discount code SBSPOD in all caps, you save 5% off of your order. Um, So you can join me in this wealth building endeavor, 5% at a time, it builds up big time. So uh, very thankful to the folks at BulkSupplements.com. It's always a pleasure to sell out every week when we uh, tip tip the cap to them. Oh, a- actually, on that note, uh, I have a surprise for you, Trex. What would that be? So uh, I-, I just got word from the mailroom at Stronger by Science Headquarters International uh, that our first check from Bulk Supplements arrived. You're kidding. We are literally dozens of dollars wealthier uh, and... Since we have now been paid via something from the podcast, uh, well, I was going to say we can call ourselves professional podcasters. You can now call yourself a professional podcaster, and I have had the honor of being a special temporary guest host to a professional podcaster. So that's that's a new, like, pretty exciting line item for my resume. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, I, I don't want to be too egotistical, but... 
when I got a PhD and decided to be an assistant blogger, a lot of people, <laughs> um, a lot of people gave me grief. But let let's see who's laughing now. Now that I'm a <laughs> professional podcaster. Uh, <laughs> okay, so um, we like I said, we've got plenty of research to cover today. But before we do that, let's get into some good news. So, Greg, you've got some good news for us. Yeah, so uh, last episode, we actually took a bit of heat um, because between when we recorded the last episode and when the last episode aired, uh, there was some big positive news on the COVID-19 vaccine front. uh, And people were like, ah, like Greg and Eric just you know, being bummers about good news that isn't actually good news when there is actually legitimate good news in the world. Like, fuck you, dude. Like, it takes (laughs) it takes literal days of sweat and toil to get this podcast in a publishable state. Uh, That news had not yet surfaced when we recorded the last episode, but now it has. uh, And so that's my good news. There are uh, three very promising COVID-19 vaccines in the pipeline. Uh, seems like one is very, very close to being approved in Europe or has been approved already uh, and is likely to start rolling out soon. Uh, there are two that they're saying are very close to being approved in the U.S., and they're hoping that those can start being rolled out in the next month or two. Uh, so, you know, seems like this uh, this long nightmare might be coming to an end. The only way it wouldn't be is if maybe there was some less good news about how many people plan to get the vaccine. Oh, wait. Fucking breaking news. Uh, there was new, uh, new data from Pew Research that just came out two days ago asking Americans <laughs> how likely they were to get uh, a COVID-19 vaccine when it comes out. And only 60% of Americans say that they'll either, quote, probably or definitely get the vaccine. Uh, 21% say probably not, and 18% say definitely not. And the thing is, uh, 60% is right at the level where it wouldn't be enough to to actually start curtailing the virus, uh, or like to curtail it in a big way if everything went back to normal. Uh, so... Scientists say that the basic reproduction rate for COVID-19 is about 2.5. That's the R0 value if you were following epidemiology stuff early in the pandemic, uh, which basically means that if people are just going about their lives and the virus is spreading, you know, pretty much unchecked, every person who gets it on average is probably going to pass it along to about two and a half people on average. Uh, And so you can do some math. And uh, you would need about 60% immunity for the reproduction rate to drop to one. And at a reproduction rate of one, that basically means that the rate of new cases would be unchanged. So, you know, if there's, what, 200,000 cases a day now, if everything went back to normal pre-pandemic, there would just keep being 200,000 cases a day. You need the reproduction rate to drop below one before cases start dropping. So, like, 60% is is right at the cusp of how many people would need immunity to, you know, basically let the thing peter out naturally if all restrictions were dropped. So, anyway, uh, we got to pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers. Uh, and the the one ray of sunshine is in July, 
the same type of survey found that uh, instead of it being about 60-40, 60% willing to get the vaccine and 40% not, it was about 50-50 in July. So things are trending in a positive direction, um, and hopefully they'll continue to do so. But anyway, uh, overall, pretty positive news. Uh, I tried as hard as I could to put a cynical spin on it, but uh, this is on net positive enough that I can't be that curmudgeonly about it. Very, very exciting. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons that I didn't put that in the good news is like, I've tried, I've been trying to adhere to our initial policy of keeping this show as a pretty non COVID show. Well, we said, we said that was the purpose of the fireside chats. Right. But I, I've still been trying to adhere to that a little bit. The reason being like, I don't know. You turn on a football game and like every single segment starts in these days of COVID. And it's like, you look at the field and like half the linemen are out and like, I don't know. It's nice to have some places where you're not getting COVID information. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's fair. But, uh, but no, I mean, of course the vaccine is fantastic news. So uh, at least it's the good stuff that we're sharing, you know? But it, it did get to that point, especially like, man, a couple months into it, you could not consume a piece of media that was not fully about COVID. I mean, if, if we want a non-COVID related, more tainted good news story, uh, on one of on one of the good news sites I checked to, to try to find good news uh, for this <laughs> segment of the podcast, apparently the Queen of England is launching a line of gin, uh, which is exactly what the fuck the royal family needs. Just another way to generate wealth. Uh, it's very dark. Uh, the royal family shouldn't exist. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying they should be killed. I just think that that uh, monarchy shouldn't be a thing anymore. Fair uh, enough. Just my opinion. Interesting perspective. We'll, we'll have to have an episode about forms of government and which ones we think are most appropriate. Hell yeah. Um, okay, I've got some good news. Uh, partial good news. Uh, I try to keep in line with our general cynical approach to being happy. <laughs> so <laughs> listeners of the show know that we've talked a lot about open science and this idea of like, hey, you know, reviewers should be getting paid. They're very skilled people providing an, a very important service for entities that make obscene amounts of money. So like that's a pretty intuitive relationship there. The people doing that review ought to be getting paid. Well, we've got a partial victory for the open science movement. So you'll recall a while back we talked about nature and they were going they were developing a new open access route and for the low cost of about $12,000 you could <laughs> give them your work for free and they would own it for $12,000. Um, but there's another wrinkle there. There's kind of another layer to this kind of system that they're rolling out for some of their smaller to, journals to make it an even better deal. Yes. Yeah. So for some of their smaller journals, not the big highlight, you know, the big names, um, they have this other system where it's like, okay, well, we'll review it and, uh, there will be a cost up front. Like you pay us to get your paper reviewed we might reject it and that cost is non-refundable, but we might publish it. And if we do publish it, you'll have to pay the rest. And so the total cost comes to, I don't know, five, $6,000 uh, United States. So uh, here's, here's the wrinkle. So the win here, the good news is that they have officially on paper said 
the review of a manuscript is an important, valuable thing that should be paid for. That's a that's a nice thing. Because like, we've looked at the books of some like, some publishing companies that like all the fees that they put in their financial statements are just like these rant, like miscellaneous and like publishing costs. It's like, yeah, I know it's publishing costs. You're a publisher. What is the cost? What is this going to? So in this scenario, they actually have said a review is worth money and this is how much it's worth. And that's a big win. The only downside is that they're not going to pay the reviewers any of it. So, so they're basically saying, this is a service. This is how much it costs. We will provide 0% of that service and take 100% of the revenue generated. And I mean, the, the, these aren't like the nature flagship journal, but ev- all of these nature journals have really high rejection rates. Correct. Like they're, they're basically just saying like, you know, what are their rejection rates? Do you think probably around 90%? Let's say 80%. Let's be yeah. charitable. Uh, so, you know, they're charging like 2,500 USD, give or take for, for people to submit to review. So basically they're making, if we assume an 80% rejection rate, uh, which again, it's probably quite a bit higher. They're making 10 grand on papers they reject before they make another five grand per one they accept. Like they're, they're, they're probably making somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 grand per paper. Yeah. Uh, which is fucking bonkers, and ten, and ten grand of that is just on rejections. Listen to this. Listen to this idea, though, because this is a this is a completely fair assessment of the arrangement. They are telling you as an author, if you pay us like twenty six hundred dollars, we will let some person tell you why your work sucks, and that's the entirety of the relationship. <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna look into it and determine how how and why your work sucks. We're gonna let some other person do it. And I see you have this highlighted. Uh, part of that relationship is they're actually making the unpaid reviewers do even more labor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in return for, for the authors, they get a review document, which the publisher says includes more detailed editorial evaluation than typical review reports. So, like, they're making other people do even more unpaid labor than before to give even more detailed notes back about why your paper sucks. Uh, and they're pocketing like 2,500 USD off of every single one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 crazy. This is officially, this has officially crossed the line for a lot of people. I've seen Twitter in a bit of a, a bit of an outrage about it where people are like, I'm not going to review for these journals anymore. But, uh, but yeah, I don't want to belabor the point too much because this is for like, you know, a small percentage of the audience is probably super interested in these dynamics. Well, but. No, everyone should be interested in it because for the most part, so you think like, well, okay, uh, like if if it costs this much and if it's such a bad deal, like the scientists just aren't going to pay for it and, uh, you know, the market's going to sort it out. But the thing is, uh, the scientists aren't the one paying for it. You're the one paying for it. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, because most of these fees are being covered by grants from government agencies. So like tax dollars are paying for it. Uh, and the thing is like, so I forget the names, the name of the law, but like there, there was a law passed uh, like by the EU, maybe like two or three years ago that basically said anything that gets EU funded has to be published open access. Uh, and they, as far as I can tell, essentially write a blank check. 
saying like, you know, like open access journals have, uh, have publication fees, like that's how they work. And so like, you know, if you get it published, you have to publish it open access, uh, and tax dollars are going to cover that. Like if you're using public funds, public funds are going to pay for it to be published open access. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure California passed a similar law, uh, in the U S and I, I know that that's already been the case for, uh, NIH and NSF funded projects for a while now. Yeah. Uh, like they have to be published open access and like the grants from those government agencies are the ones covering the publication fees. And so if you're an author, it makes all the sense in the world to submit to a nature journal because like if it gets accepted and you have to pay the $12,000, you don't have to pay the $12,000. The fucking government's going to pay the $12,000. Uh, and if it gets rejected, like that's fine. But like, if it does get accepted, like that's a very, very good line on your CV to be published in a nature journal. Uh, and so like, there's really no disincentive here for the authors. Uh, and they're just like, they're spending your money, but more importantly, uh, fucking Springer Nature is taking your money because they know that there's nothing stopping them from being able to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's not great. Okay, uh, so that's all the good news. I, I hope you've gotten your fill for the week. Uh, what about some feats of strength? Uh, yeah, so I have five this week. Uh, gonna start outside of powerlifting because uh, I, I think feats of strength basically just turns into what are strong people in powerlifting doing. Uh, so going to start in strongman, Mark Jeans. Uh, I don't know if this actually like set a new record, like in a record book somewhere. I'm not totally sure how record keeping for strongman works. Uh, it may have just been a training lift, but he, uh, he shouldered the heaviest Atlas stone that a human has ever shouldered. Uh, so typically if you're doing Atlas stones, uh, you're, you're just loading them over a bar, um, ranging from, like 40 inches would be really low, 60 inches would be really high, but like somewhere in that general range. So, you know, if you can get it up to somewhere around chest level, like that's generally all you have to do with stones. Uh, shouldering it, as the name implies, is getting it all the way up to your shoulder, which is considerably harder than just getting it up to your chest. Uh, so he shouldered a 474 pound Atlas stone, which is bonkers. That's crazy. Uh, and if you've never fucked around with stones before, you don't know how crazy that is. Like, stones are fucking hard, dude. Uh, and that's a shitload of weight to shoulder. Uh, so congratulations to Mark. Uh, the previous the, the previous heaviest anyone had ever shouldered, I think, was 211 kilos. Uh, so what's that, like 468, give or take, 466. Uh, so yeah, very, very strong, very impressive. Uh, moving back to my wheelhouse of powerlifting, uh, Ashton Ruska, uh, USAPL lifter, he recently totaled uh, 950 and a half kilos or 2,095 and a half pounds uh, in the 105 kilo or 231 pound weight class. That uh, <laughs> that puts his total 50 kilos ahead. Uh, or 110 pounds ahead of the next closest person in that weight class. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's still a, a really light 105 as well. Uh, he he competed in uh, in the 93 kilo class until pretty recently. Uh, so he still has a ton of room to grow into that class. Uh, and also, 
most of the lifts he did in the meet. It looked like he had a fair bit more in the tank, definitely on bench. Uh, For the squat, his third attempt squat looked a little shaky going down, but it still came up fast. Uh, So, I mean, he currently has more in the tank, and he's still making progress pretty quickly. Uh, So, you know, dominating that class right now, and there is no reason to expect he won't continue to do so in the future. Moving on uh, to the less drug-tested side of powerlifting, Yuri Belkin uh, deadlifted 445 kilos or 981 pounds uh, as a very light 242 or 110 kilo lifter. Uh, He weighed in at 227 or 103. Uh, He kind of bounces back and forth between the 100 and 110 classes. uh, And he recently lost his deadlift record to Jamal Browner. So he said, okay, I'm going to put on two pounds and take it back. Uh, So... Very, very strong. Very crazy. Uh, there's going to be, it looks like multiple 110-kilo uh, lifters deadlifting in the thousands soon. Uh, so that's bad shit crazy, but very, very cool. Um, Christy Hawkins, moving on. Uh, so she currently has the deadlift world record in the untested female 165-pound or 75-kilo weight class uh, at 262 and a half kilos or 578 pounds she recently pulled 275 kilos or 606 in training uh so it looks like she is going to be the first uh middleweight female lifter to break a 600 pound deadlift in a meet which is also just absolutely bonkers so congrats to her uh, and finally, <laughs> probably the most freakish of all of them uh Eddie Berglund uh He is a Swedish uh, IPF lifter, uh, recently moved from the junior class to the open. Uh, He did a training meet, like a mock meet, uh, and he hit a 730 kilo total, which would break the record by 24 and a half kilos or 54 pounds, uh, which is, you know, that's impressive enough on its own. But the, the very freakish part of this is the lift breakdown so uh, <laughs> so it, Eddie Berglund is probably like the dude people have in mind if they think folks with really extreme bench arches and like hyper efficient bench technique uh so he's uh he has one of the most impressive bench techniques in powerlifting like I don't think it's bad or cheating. I think it's fucking awesome. Uh, but well, he had, yeah, if it's within the rules, it is not cheating. Yeah, he has like a two-inch range of motion. And like, if I could have a two-inch range of motion, I would. Yeah. And if like any competitive powerlifter could, they would. Like, whatever. People can get mad. They can fucking die mad. I don't <laughs> care. But anyway, uh, hyper-efficient bench press technique. And that allows him <laughs> to <laughs> hit a gym total of... Uh, 250, 235, 245, or in freedom units, that's a 551-pound squat, 518-pound bench, and 540-pound deadlift, (laughs) Um, which, like, that's crazy, dude. Uh, I don't, I mean, I I would, I would need to check, uh, the archives, but if he were to put that up in a meet, uh, and break the world record. I don't know if there's ever been a world record total where the bench is that high of a percentage of it. Uh, 
Just absolutely wild shit. That would break the bench record in his weight class as well. Oh, also, keep in mind, uh, he's he's a 66-kilo lifter, or 145 pounds. A 518 bench at 145? That's wild. Like, that's absolutely crazy. Uh, and that would break the bench record by uh, 12 and a half kilos in his weight class, or 27 and a half pounds. Uh, so, you know, he he's up there in, in the great white north, just absolutely thriving, uh, pressing his bench presses exactly an inch and a half and, you know, making people on Instagram mad. Uh, <laughs> so props to the guy. More power to him. Absolutely. All right. That's good stuff. A lot of, uh, a lot of really good feats of strength. Uh, so we're going to move on and talk about research. Basically, the rest of the show is going to be a nice, long research roundup, uh, hitting the highlights. So it's, it's not like a research review segment where we do 40 minutes on a single study, but we're going to hit the highlights because there's been a lot of cool research that's come out lately. And Greg, every month you write three articles for Mass, I write two, and there's only so many we can hit on a month to month basis. You know, we do our journal sweep, which is, I mean, we usually get what three or 400 studies per month. Yeah. Thereabouts, uh, which is publicly available by the way, if, if you want to read three or 400 of the most notable studies each month, uh, <laughs> it's there, but, uh, but we want to go through some of the highlights and the first one I want to begin with is a meta analysis about protein intake. And so the lead author's name is Tagawa and, uh, this came out just last month, I believe. And so you might be thinking, well, we already have that meta by Morton and colleagues from 2018 that was looking at basically, you know, it used like meta regression and said, how high should our protein be if we're interested in maximizing our lean mass gains over time? Uh, but, you know, this meta analysis is, is a little bit different from that, from that Morton one. So the Morton one, I think a lot of people kind of forget this, but if memory serves, it was specifically the main point of the paper was about protein supplementation. Correct. Yeah. So it was specifically looking at papers that included protein supplements, uh, not just studies that look at varying in intakes of protein from whole foods. So um, this particular meta-analysis by Tagawa and colleagues was not just looking at protein supplementation studies. So as a result of that, there was a much larger number of studies included in this analysis. So in the Morton study uh, or meta-analysis, they, they looked at that meta-regression, that classic figure that you see posted all over the place. I use it in some of my talks as well. Uh, but it had 42 study arms with two, uh, sorry, with 723 total participants. Well, in this meta, in the analysis where they were looking at kind of optimizing protein intakes, it included data from 105 articles and a total of over 5,400 participants. Uh, and about 2,700 of those 5,400 were doing resistance training as part of their, their protein intervention. So basically what they did, the, the real, uh, if you just wanted to get a pretty basic assessment of this meta-analysis, a lot like the Morton study, there's kind of this one figure that really jumps out that, that kind of summarizes the findings in general. And what they did is they had a grid. It was a three by three grid with nine different graphs within this figure. And the reason they did that is, you know, they had basically an unadjusted raw model with no covariates. And then they had two other models with different groupings of covariates included. Uh, They're trying to be really thorough and say, you know, we talked about this in the past. Sometimes studies will just give you 
a model with a bunch of covariates and you kind of have to hope that the covariates make sense and you can't really determine how much they impacted the model if they don't include the raw model as well. So this was great. They had the raw model, an adjusted model, and then another adjusted model. And they also presented it, each of those models in three different ways. So they looked at all of the studies together, and then they looked at the studies with people doing resistance training, and then the studies with people who weren't doing resistance training to see if there would be a difference. Now, the, the real conclusion of this study, um, you know, they have these nine different graphs uh, and they, of course, have some differences from, from panel to panel, but generally speaking, they are pretty consistent. And, and what they find is the following. There is an inflection point. So there's a steep part of the graph and then a less steep. So the steep part basically indicates that as your protein intake, your daily protein intake increases from zero to about 1.3, 1.5 grams per kilogram of body mass per day, there's a pretty steep slope. You know, as you keep increasing your protein up to that point, you're getting pretty notable improvements in your lean body mass gains uh, over the course of an intervention, and frankly, with or without lifting, uh, just because the, the results line up pretty well with both. The main difference here is that, you know, they have that kind of flatter part of the figure where it's like, okay, once you get above 1.3, 1.5-ish grams per kilogram per day, the relationship flattens out. So it's not like a small increase in protein is going to have a huge impact on your lean mass improvements. But one of the big differences here, of course, there's a subtle difference comparing this to the Morton results, which is instead of the line being at 1.6, it's closer to the 1.3, 1.5 range, depending on which particular part of the figure the the break point the break point yeah yeah, yeah. what did i say you, you said the line yeah yeah the, the the break point in the line is uh is a little bit but i mean that's functionally the same thing right yeah if we're talking about oh it's 1.4 1.6 it it's pretty much the same thing the big difference is that in these figures that less steep part after the inflection point where the where the the line kind of flattens out the big difference in, in these results compared to Morton is these don't totally flatten out. So in the Morton figure from that 2018 paper, it's like it increased up to 1.6 and was flat, like extremely flat. Was, wasn't that part of their model specification? Like they basically went in a priori saying like past a certain point, additional protein intake will not have uh, oh. will not have an effect. And therefore, we're looking for the point where it goes flat. Like, uh, I'm, that, I'm pretty sure that's what they did. Yeah, I'd have to double check that in the methods. But that sounds realistic because it's flat as hell Yeah. <laughs> when you look at the figure. Uh, with these particular models, it's not flat. And so you still get some degree of benefit in these models from increasing your protein up to 1.8, 2.0, 2.2, and so on, you still get some benefit, but it's just not as notable as when you're f way further down the curve. When you're down increasing from one gram per kilogram to 1.5, much larger difference than if you're increasing it from 2.1 to 2.6. So functionally, these results line up pretty well with the Morton results. And, and basically, uh, it's nice to see another study indicating that we have a pretty good idea at where we start to kind of 
uh, max out our benefits of higher protein diets more or less. Like there's still benefits beyond that point, but knowing where that inflection point is, is really helpful for setting practical guidelines of how much protein should I get in um, to make sure that I'm doing my best without displacing other important nutrients, you know? So what they conclude though, so if you just like kind of jump into the abstract, what they indicate is, uh, you know, the, the way they put it is that slightly increasing protein intake uh, enhances lean mass gains in a dose dependent manner in a range going from 0.5 to 3.5 grams per kilogram per day. And so without looking at the figures, you might be inclined to think, oh, damn, I've been eating 1.8. I should bump it to 3.5 because like dose response, I know what that means. And I want the biggest response. So I'm going to up the dose. Um, but looking at the models, up the dose lift the most. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a different interpretation of upping the dose. But when you look at the models, you basically get the same idea, which is that you definitely want to be up into that 1.4, 1.6, 1.8 range. If, if you want to make sure you're getting the most bang for your buck with protein, how far you go beyond that depends on, like I said, at what point are we unnecessarily displacing other nutrients in the diet? And so that usually is what's your functional limiter of how high we push that or just satiety. If you're just like, dude, I can't keep eating 300 grams of protein per day. So um, it's one of those studies that I wanted to bring it up because first of all, it kind of reinforces a lot of the practical application that a lot of people are already advocating. Uh, so this doesn't like change our, our idea of protein intake and flip it on its head. But I also wanted to kind of clarify a little nuance behind that abstract, because if you just look at the abstract, you'd probably be inclined to think like, damn, dude, I've only been eating 1.9. I need to like double it, you know, which is probably not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to add even more context, the up the dose, lift the most uh, quip. So th this is, I'm not going to use names. Uh, I don't want... I don't want people starting social media drama with me. Don't have time for that in my life. Uh, so I'll leave this anonymous, but it's one of the more incredible things I've seen in lifting culture on the internet. Uh, and I want to share it with you, dear listener. So uh, there was a very well-known, very not drug-free lifter uh, <laughs> posting about training. And uh, someone in the comments said like, Hey, uh, so-and-so, uh, I'm 15. I'm just getting into powerlifting. You're my idol. I want to be just like you. Like what, what tips do you have for me to become the next you? Uh, and this person, huge platform, very well known, <laughs> interacting with a teenager, probably, you know, maybe two years into puberty at most responds up the dose, lift the most lol. <laughs> <laughs> that was just that was his which like to be fair uh that very well probably is uh, a non-negligible amount of uh of this guy's success so like it's good that he has the wherewithal to realize that but like not great that he didn't have the wherewithal to <laughs> to tell a 15 year old kid like dude just do drugs yeah it's uh <laughs> He is he's the fictitious character they warned us about in the dare lessons, <laughs> yeah, you know, for, that for real. these ultra cool people are going to, you know, offer you drugs your entire life and tell you that you have to take them to be cool like them. Yeah. Yeah. Apparent. OK, I apologize to dare. I guess they they had a point.
<laughs> oh man. All right. So uh, yeah, let let's move on and keep talking about protein a little bit. Um, so there was a. Uh, I guess I can call it a meta study. It's an it's an analysis of four studies from a particular lab group. Uh, the title is Essential Amino Acids and Protein Synthesis, uh, colon, Insights into Maximizing the Muscle and Whole Body Response to Feeding by Church and Colleagues. Uh, and so basically what they did is they compiled data from four studies out of their lab uh, looking at uh, changes in both muscle protein synthesis and whole body uh, protein synthesis following protein feedings with different levels of essential amino acid concentrations. Uh, and, and they basically wanted to see um, just kind of like what essential amino acid related variables would be related to muscle protein synthesis or if they would be in the first place. Um, and so they looked... Uh, at changes in muscle protein synthesis and whole body uh, protein synthesis associated with the area under the curve uh, for essential amino acids in the blood, for essential amino acid maximum concentration in the blood, changes in, in essential amino acid concentration after feeding, uh, and the rate of increase of essential amino acid concentration. And they basically found that all four of those things were uh, significantly positively associated with muscle protein synthesis. So if you have a greater area under the curve, muscle protein synthesis is going to ramp up to a greater degree. If you had a higher maximum essential amino acid concentration, muscle protein synthesis is going to ramp up to a greater degree, etc. cetera. Uh, the R values for those associations range from about 0.42 to about 7.24. Um, and the for muscle protein synthesis specifically, the strongest association was for maximum essential amino acid concentration in the blood that you hit uh, after a protein feeding. Uh, one thing that's notable is this this finding was basically independent of total protein intake. So uh, these studies looked at a, a lot of different protein containing foods, ranging from like whey protein by itself, whey protein spiked with various levels of essential amino acids, uh, eggs, meat, uh, nuts, I believe, beans, like a, a whole bunch of different things. And they found that independent of, of total protein intake, uh, all, all of these various essential amino acid related variables were associated with muscle protein synthesis. Uh, so, like I said, they were primarily looking at four studies out of their lab group, uh, but they also brought in 13 other studies in the literature that basically looked at, at the same sorts of things. Um, so, you know, varying levels of essential amino acid intakes and then postprandial uh, changes in muscle protein synthesis. And the, the group mean findings of those 13 studies tracked really, really well with the regression lines from the individual subject data from the four studies they were looking at. Um, so this is uh, this constitutes a pretty strong result suggesting that, you know, not the only thing that matters for uh, for muscle protein synthesis being essential amino acid intake, but that it's a very, very uh, important thing. The reason that this stuck in my mind when I saw it is... Um, I, I saw Bill Campbell post on Instagram maybe two weeks ago 
about uh, muscle protein synthesis following BCAA intake. Uh, and like, I don't really follow amino acid research that closely. Uh, I don't know. Like, I follow lifting research more. <laughs> um, yeah. And so like, I, I kind of had in my mind that like, you know, both essential amino acids and branch chain amino acids as things that one might consume are both probably inferior to whole proteins and like maybe essential amino acids are a little better, but like, you know, they're probably not all that much different uh, because like leucine seems to be the really important trigger. And if you're taking a branch chain supplement or an essential amino acid supplement, you're going to have a fair amount of leucine in it either way. Uh, but uh, Bill's post on Instagram, which I dug up the resources for and checked for accuracy. And of course, Bill's legit. It was accurate. Uh, apparently only like uh, of the studies that look at muscle protein synthesis after specific like branch chain amino acid specific supplementation, two of them found uh, increases in muscle protein synthesis, two found no meaningful change. And two actually found uh, decreases in muscle protein synthesis. So it really seems like branched chain amino acids by themselves don't really do that much for you. Whereas essential amino acids uh, do seem to come in pretty clutch and be pretty predictive of, of uh, postprandial uh, MPS. So anyway, uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm pretty strongly in the essential amino acid camp uh, if, if that battle were being held. Um, so I, I think in general, if you're mostly getting your protein from animal sources, it's going to have a fair amount of all of the essential amino acids anyways. Uh, but I think this study does suggest that, uh, if you're maybe a vegan or if you're a vegetarian who just doesn't consume that many eggs or that many dairy products, it might actually not be a terrible idea to get an essential amino acid supplementation and just take a little bit along with your meals because uh, it, it does seem like they, they really are uh, collectively, not just leucine in, in isolation, uh, do seem to be a, a pretty big driving factor for uh, postprandial muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. I mean, you know, th that's kind of the what I've always advocated. Not always. I mean, when I was like seven or eight years old, I didn't even care, to be honest. <laughs> but in recent years, you know, a Branch chain amino acids got pretty big. They got pretty popular. And then people are like, wait a minute. Shouldn't we be having like other essential amino acids too? And, and the answer is, yeah, like you definitely should. So like maybe if you were, if you were eating some particular combination of foods where you had all of your amino acid bases covered, except for the branch chain amino acids, if you were in that rare scenario, it might make sense, but generally speaking, you're going to be far better off with an essential amino acid supplement for sure. Um, okay, moving on. I've got uh, a couple studies here about meal timing. And uh, I honestly, I'll be transparent. I just included these because I thought it was funny. Um, <laughs> I, there's a point to be made though. So like sometimes you'll, you'll talk to people who are, they kind of are loosely connected. They'll want, look at the news headlines about health research or nutrition research, and they'll like hold on to it. And eventually it leads to frustration, right? You'll, you'll talk to people who aren't super in touch with, with the up-to-date research. And they're like, dude, 
they told me this was bad six months ago. Now they're saying it's good. In six months, they're going to say it's bad again. Like the mixed messaging in the headlines is just annoying. So I'm just going to stop caring about all of it. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it, it can cause a lot of fatigue and frustration when there's contradictory takeaway points, uh, you know, from the headline. So there are three studies that came out within the last like month that, that looked at meal timing in different ways. And this is the important thing. I'm not saying that any one of these three studies was done poorly. It's three studies looking at the same thing from a different perspective with a different research design with a slightly different research question even. And so the first one is called late eating is associated with cardiometabolic risk traits, obesogenic behaviors, and impaired weight loss. Um, the second one is called higher eating frequency is associated with lower adiposity and robust circadian rhythms, a cross-sectional study. And the third is called impact of meal Fre- frequency on anthropometric outcomes, a systematic review and network meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. And so if you were a person who was just like, okay, I'm going to skim these and get the headlines. The first pe- the first paper basically concludes grading e- uh, greater eating frequency greater than five eating occasions per day, greater than five meals per day, was significantly associated with a lower BMI. Easy. Eat more meals, lower BMI, good stuff. Stoke that metabolic furnace, baby. Exactly. Simple stuff. Now, the next one says, our results suggest that late eating is associated with cardiometabolic risk factors and reduced efficacy of a weight loss intervention. So that makes it a little tricky because it's like, we'll eat plenty of meals but none of them late in the evening. So it's like, well, that naturally is going to kind of truncate the number of meals you can eat if you have to kind of squeeze them all earlier in the day. They're not necessarily directly contradictory, but you're already getting a little bit of mixed messages. Like, should I spread this stuff over several meals throughout the day or should I not? Now, here's where the message gets even more mixed. So this is from the third study, I believe. It said one meal per day was ranked as the best eating frequency for reduced body weight, followed by two meals per day. Our suggest uh, our results suggest that two meals per day probably slightly reduces body weight compared to three meals per day, but we are uncertain if one or two meals per day reduces body weight compared with greater than or equal to eight meals per day. <laughs> and so the take home there is, you know, the first two studies said, you know, eat more meals, but none of them late or eat as few as possible unless you're going to eat eight or more. (laughs) So like have one or two or nine. And so like if someone was, was keeping up with these this month, they'd be like, dude, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? You know? And the important thing to take away from this is like the headlines are going to make it seem very clear and concise and simple, but you really have to dig into, okay, what exact research question were they looking at? How exactly were they assessing it? And what you'll find is that multiple groups can look at the same question with slightly different perspectives and with slightly different research approaches. And we we end up with these convoluted and completely contradictory conclusions when we try to put them all together into a tidy story. So it's, it, I just thought it was kind of funny because I, I taught a an undergraduate class about research interpretation and we would look at study headlines and then look at the study itself and say, oh, well, the headline seems stupid, but there's actually some, there's, these are not stupid people doing the research, right? Like mm-hmm. the research itself was fine, but we played a little bit of telephone, things got mixed up. And it's just always really critical whenever you run into those contradictory headlines, like 
take a look at at least the abstract and get an idea of like, oh, okay, these are very different studies when you really get down into the details. Um, but of course, I want to give uh, something that's useful here. I think from my perspective, one of the big uh, issues when you look at the meal frequency literature is that a lot of the research adopts one of two perspectives. Some studies are looking at it from more of a public health basic guideline perspective. So like you probably heard one of the studies specifically looked at obesogenic traits. It was more focused on like what cluster of behaviors seems to be associated with whether or not you eat at night or eat really frequently throughout the day. So this is like from a, you know, very far back perspective just taking a look at like, okay, we got some people who don't eat a lot of meals, some people who do eat a lot of meals, who seems to be having success here? You know, that's a very different perspective from looking at a very controlled individual level intervention and saying like, if we give this person a meal three hours later than we did in the other group, is it going to completely harpoon their success? Like those are very, very different perspectives when you look at, at this research. And I think Danny Lennon did a really nice job looking at the the perspective that I find a little bit more informative for what I do. Like I don't make public health guidelines. I help people reach their physique goals, right? Or their performance goals. And so what I want to know is at the individual level, is there a meal timing strategy that necessarily is going to completely destroy your progress or, or really hinder your ability to approach your goals? What we know based on the, the controlled interventions you can honestly succeed with whatever the hell kind of meal frequency you want. I think it makes sense to have at least three protein servings per day. I usually recommend three to five. Within that framework, you can do whatever the hell you want. I mean, we've got really good interventions that we've talked about on the show where people are doing time-restricted feeding, eight-hour feeding window. Uh, as long as you're not trying to maximize hypertrophy, you can even go a hell of a lot shorter than eight than eight hours. Like I, I there, There's really no meal frequency strategy that is completely off the table. But I think if you really wanted to optimize it based on kind of the most current evidence we have, I think Danny did a great job in his uh, article about chrononutrition. Is it chrono or chrononutrition? I've always said chrono. Chrononutrition. That sounds good. Um, but basically, if you really wanted to optimize things and kind of hedge your bets and say, I want to really sweat over the details of this, avoiding meals during biological night. So during the time period where you typically sleep each day, it's probably a good idea to avoid nighttime meals. Um, you want to probably not eat within two to three hours of sleep time. Uh, generally bias more of your calories earlier in the day, have consistent meal times from day to day. So getting in a meal timing rhythm, uh, whatever you're doing, keeping it pretty consistent, um, probably makes sense to have some type of restricted feeding window, which doesn't mean, you know, snake diet, like eat once every four days, but basically have a period of the day what you know, maybe it's like 12 hours or something where even if it's only 10, eight hours, but a period of the day where you're not eating, where, where you have some kind of like overnight fast. And what Danny says is start with a 12 hour fasting period, which is just a, that's just a normal eating schedule, right? Eating for 12 hours a day and then not eating for the other 12 but having some kind of start and stop time for your meals. And then, uh, you know, the idea of chrononutrition is kind of blending nutrition guidelines with uh, circadian rhythm biology. 
And so it's always a good idea if you can get daylight exposure early in the day and avoid artificial light, especially blue wavelength light really late at night. So basic, uh, basic instructions from Danny and the article is really nice. He goes into detail about what the evidence is behind all of those recommendations. But if you really wanted to stress over the details and optimize your eating uh, in order to kind of, you know, get your circ- circadian biology in order. Those are maybe, you know, the that's probably the most straightforward set of guidelines that you could try to aim for. But realistically, when you see these three different studies with three different takeaways regarding meal frequency, at the end of the day, we know from the interventions, you can eat whenever the hell you want. It's going to be fine. I think it's a good idea to get three big servings of protein at least throughout the day. Everything beyond that is is getting into the the kind of nitty gritty details that probably don't make a huge difference. Makes sense to me. Now I'm really excited about this next one. Uh, so this is a paper that a lot of people have been talking about uh, uncritically. You're just kind of like, hey, I mean, I see what the conclusion says. Makes sense to me. Feels good. I'm interested to hear your take about it. So take take it away from there. Yeah. So the the title of the paper is "Is Stronger Better?" question mark Influence of a strength phase followed by a hypertrophy phase on muscular adaptations in resistance-trained men by Carvalho and colleagues. Uh, Noteworthy, uh, that is different from Barbalio, who we've talked about on the podcast before. Different people. It does rhyme, though. It does. You'll you'll concede that point. That is uh, correct. Uh, anyway, so I, I think this study got talked about a lot uh, in our space because most people are either like power lifters or if they're physique folks, they still want to be like kind of strong. Like there, there's there, there's a, a pretty decent, I, I would say, like powerlifting centric bias within the like, quote unquote, evidence based fitness community. Uh, and so I think people liked this study because it confirmed something they wanted to be true. Uh, And that's basically the idea that if you do a specific strength phase and try to to maximize strength adaptations, that will then subsequently improve your hypertrophy results in a subsequent hypertrophy phase. Like basically, if your muscles get stronger, you can then uh, expose them to greater stress uh, disrupt homeostasis more, uh, get some more hypertrophic adaptations, and, and that's all going to be good. Uh, and so I think like a lot of people want that to be true, uh, and so they saw this paper, uh, and th- that's more or less what the findings of this paper were, and they're like, ha, yes, now we have it. We have the golden study uh, that backs up this thing that we've been suggesting to be true all these years, and now we know it to be true. Um, and anyway... I'm somewhat skeptical of that take as someone who definitely wants this to be true. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, let's get into it. So in this study, uh, the subjects were trained men. Um, They averaged, I think, about four years of training experience and all squatted at least one and a half times body mass. So, you know, they're they're not going to, like do anything crazy on a powerlifting platform, but like reasonably strong for folks uh, in the resistance training literature. Uh, and so to start the study, um, they they split the subjects into two groups. Uh, one group was to do just like a pure hypertrophy training program 
The other group was to start with strength training and then do hypertrophy training. Uh, but both groups started with a standardized three-week lead-in phase. So uh, for three weeks before the, the group started training differently, uh, they had three weeks where they trained twice per week uh, doing squats and leg press for four sets uh, with 8 to 12 rep max loads twice per week. Uh, did that for three weeks. Then they did their pre-training testing. Uh, and then the, the training programs of the groups differed. So there was a group that only did hypertrophy training for eight weeks. Uh, so they kept doing four sets of 8 to 12 RM squats and leg presses twice per week uh, for all eight weeks. And then the other group did a three-week strength phase where uh, they still did squats and leg presses twice per week, but instead of sets of 8 to 12 rep max, uh, they did four sets with a 1 to 3 rep max load twice per week for three weeks. Uh, and then for the last five weeks of the study, they did the same program as the other group. So four sets with an 8 to 12 rep max load uh, for the last five weeks of the study. Uh, so they assessed one rep max squat and leg press strength and vastus lateralis thickness uh, after the lead-in, after uh, three weeks of the differentiated training inter intervention, so after the, the strength then hypertrophy group had finished their strength phase, uh, and then after all eight weeks of the training program were concluded. Um, during the first three weeks, uh, the group who started with their strength phase gained more strength. So they put about 16 uh, kilos on their squat compared to four for the hypertrophy group, about 29 kilos on their leg press compared to 10 for the hypertrophy group. Uh, but there wasn't much hypertrophy in either group, um, but the non-significant difference did lean in favor of the group doing the hypertrophy program. So they increased their vastus lateralis thickness by about 0.6 millimeters compared to about 0.2 millimeters uh, in the group starting with the strength phase. One thing to note is all of those changes I just listed, including a mere 4 kilo increase on the squat and a mere 0.2 millimeter increase of vastus lateralis thickness, all of those within group changes were statistically significant. Come back to that later. Uh, then from weeks four to eight, so the last five weeks of the study, there were comparable strength gains between groups during that period, but there was more hypertrophy in the group that had previously done a strength phase. So their vastus lateralis thickness increased by about 1.2 millimeters uh, compared to about 0.4 millimeters in the group that was only doing hypertrophy training. So over the entire course of the study from week zero to week eight, uh, there were significantly greater strength gains and significantly more hypertrophy in the group that did the three-week strength phase at the start of the study compared to the group that just did hypertrophy training for the entire eight-week intervention. Uh, so, you know, that, that seems pretty conclusive, you know. Uh, start with three weeks of strength work followed by five weeks of hypertrophy training and that's going to not only help you build more strength than just doing eight weeks of hypertrophy training, it'll help you build more muscle as well. Uh, and that sounds great. And that is about all of the discussion I've seen of it. Just like, hey, these were the findings. Uh, this is therefore the truth. And uh, let's roll, baby. You want to get big? It's time to do some heavy doubles, heavy triples. Um, so, you know, this begs the question. Are physique athletes shooting themselves in the foot by never doing maximal strength work or only very rarely doing maximal strength work? Uh, 
you know, is getting stronger primarily via kind of neural mechanisms beneficial for hypertrophy? Is is power building the way of the future? Uh, and so I, I'm skeptical, uh, and I'm skeptical for a couple reasons. First, uh, this finding conflicts with other research, so it uh, somewhat directly conflicts with the study by Prestes and colleagues in 2009. Uh, so in that study, they compared linear periodization to reverse linear periodization. So basically uh, starting lighter and working heavier versus starting heavier and working lighter. Uh, and they found that linear periodization led to both greater strength gains uh, and uh, larger accumulations of fat-free mass, which they didn't directly assess hypertrophy, but that was their uh, hypertrophy proxy in that study. Uh, whereas this study would suggest that you would expect uh, reverse linear to be better. So start with heavy loads and then do more like pure hypertrophy training later on in the program. So th these findings do conflict with Prestes and colleagues. Uh, but, you know, you can't necessarily say like, oh, the, the first study in an area is necessarily the correct one. But it's also worth noting this kind of indirectly conflicts with uh, the research comparing high load and low load training. So uh, in basically all of those studies, groups doing heavier training, so, you know, 75-80% 1RM, uh, they build more strength but similar amounts of muscle to groups training uh, with anything from like a 20 rep max load all the way down to like 30% of 1RM, which is like a 40 or 50 rep max load. Uh, so you see pretty big differences in strength gains uh, and, you know, presumably <laughs> those differences in strength accumulation start occurring relatively early in the program, similar to this study. Uh, so, you know, you see big differences in strength accumulation typically, but not meaningful differences in hypertrophy. Uh, this isn't in the outline, but something else that just occurred to me is like this also somewhat conflicts with... Uh, the research comparing uh, the effects of different periodization styles on uh, hypertrophy. So there's there's not a significant difference between linear periodization and undulating periodization. And most of the undulating periodization work uh, uses uh, daily undulating periodization. So basically with, with DUP, you're going heavy uh, at least once a week throughout. So you're getting that heavy, you're getting exposed to heavy loading uh, early and all throughout an entire training program versus linear periodization. The way it's mostly set up in the literature is you don't really touch fairly heavy weights until like the last three or four weeks before testing. Uh, so basically, you know, one would then expect um, like DUP to be superior for hypertrophy. Uh, and again, that's not what you see in the literature. So this this finding, you know, does does conflict directly with one study and indirectly with two entire bodies of literature. So, you know, that in and of itself is is worth some skepticism, I would say. Um, to push back against that, uh, one alternative possibility that might explain the findings of this study is that there might just be some some degree of benefit for adding variety in. So, in a recent podcast episode. We talked about how, you know, maybe you can quote unquote resensitize yourself to a hypertrophy stimulus. Uh, and the thing to note about this study is both of the groups had a lead in period that lasted three weeks where the training was identical to the hypertrophy training that the hypertrophy group did 
like throughout the entire eight week intervention. Uh, so basically, the the strength then hypertrophy group did three weeks of hypertrophy training, three weeks of strength training, five weeks of hypertrophy training, and the hypertrophy group basically just did 11 weeks straight of hypertrophy training. So it may not necessarily be that the strength phase matters insofar as it's a strength phase. It may just be that like, you know, 11 weeks of a hypertrophy stimulus, you, you might kind of like burn out to it, I guess. Like, you know, not burn out, but it, it just becomes progressively less effective over time. Uh, and if you just like, you know, slot a, a few weeks in where you do something different that helps you resensitize to the synth- or, uh, to the stimulus. I don't know if that's what's taking place, but that is uh, an alternative hypothesis for what was observed in the study that wouldn't necessarily conflict uh, with the other research we have. Um, so, you know, that's one possibility. Um, but I have other reasons to be skeptical of this particular research finding beyond just the fact that it does conflict with some other research. Um, so there were some uh, like weird statistical and data issues in this study. So uh, one thing that I that I mentioned before, said I'd come back to later, is the changes in basically every measure of this study were remarkably homogeneous. So uh, one of the things I mentioned is all of the changes in this study were were remarkably homogeneous. So in the group that did the strength phase first, followed by the hypertrophy phase, during that first three weeks when they were doing their strength phase, uh, their vastus lateralis thickness increased from 22.6 to 22.8 millimeters. That is a change of 0.2 millimeters. Not two millimeters. Dude, yeah. I, I, two, I, two tenths of a millimeter. When I was looking at the outline, my brain registered that as two millimeters just by default. Because I can't think of a thing smaller than a millimeter. No, no, such no. Such as half of a millimeter or 0.2 of a millimeter. Yeah, a, a fifth of a millimeter. Uh, but the within-group changes were homogeneous enough for that to be a statistically significant within-group change. Uh, I am unaware of... Any other study with with homogeneous enough hypertrophy responses for a 0.2 millimeter change in muscle thickness to be significant when you're dealing with a group sample size of 15 subjects. That's remarkably homogeneity, or, or, or a remarkable amount of homogeneity. Uh, and the same thing applies to a lesser degree with the four kilo increase in squat strength uh, in the hypertrophy group in the first three weeks. Generally, if you're dealing with an increase in strength that small, uh, again, with with relatively small group sizes, that's not going to be a significant change. Uh, and if it is, it's it's very, very homogeneous. So that's, um, you know, just something that jumped out at me. Uh, another thing that jumped out at me, um, which I, I may be telling on myself a little bit here, uh, shit like this jumps out at me. I don't think it jumps out at anyone else. But there were several issues with confidence intervals and p-values not matching up. Uh, so basically, a confidence interval implies a p-value. So if you know the confidence interval, you can calculate the p-value. And if you know the p-value, you can calculate the confidence interval if one is given but not the other. Uh, and basically, the, the way that works is if you're using the traditional null hypothesis testing cutoff of a p-value under 0.05 being significant... If you have a p-value that's just barely under 0.05, 
the bottom end of a 95% confidence interval is supposed to be scraping zero. It's supposed to be very, very close. So the entire confidence interval is contained within like either to the left or to the right of zero. It doesn't cross zero, but it gets super, super close if there's a p-value that's super close to 0.05. Uh, and so for the between group comparison of percentage change in vastus lateralis thickness, uh, the reported p-value is uh, 0.049, barely below 0.05, in favor of the group that did the strength phase first, followed by hypertrophy. But the 95% confidence interval is 0.15 to 3.2% uh, difference. Like the, that's the between group difference. And you can you can do the math. Like you can just Google the equation that you can you can punch the numbers into. Uh, but basically that implies a p-value of 0.031, which that may not sound like a, a big difference, but like that's definitely more than a rounding error. Um, and so like that jumped out at me, like p-val- or p-values and confidence intervals should match up. Like if you're using a standard statistical software and it spits out your p-values and confidence intervals, they should match up. Uh, and if, if they're not like something strange is going on, uh, it's like looking at results from body composition testing. And it's like, we've got all of our fat free mass and our fat mass, and it's noticeably different from your total mass. Right. You, you look at it and you're like, that small P value difference might not seem consequential, but it's still just like puzzle pieces that don't fit together. Yeah. yeah, Or or if you have like a standard deviation and standard error that don't match up. Right. Like a, a standard error is your standard deviation divided by the square root of your sample size. And so if you have nine subjects per group and your standard error is not one third of your standard deviation, something weird happened. Right. It's supposed right. to be exactly one third of your standard deviation. Not necessarily something nefarious, but something weird. R- right. Yeah. 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 Like some something odd happened. Uh, so anyway, that jumped out at me and, and that wasn't the only instance of that happening. That's just the one I'm using for this example. Uh, and, Finally, uh, one thing that that I have to give people props for, uh, the university where this took place, they have an open data policy. So uh, we were able to get our hands on the data set um, and, you know, just basically poke around, like see what things look like. And one of the things that jumped out at me is uh, there wasn't really any meaningful correlation between fastest lateralis thickness and strength within any of the groups at any of the time points. So the those correlation coefficients ranged from negative uh, 0.1 to about 0.4, which are remarkably low for this type of thing. So if you're looking at like not not the correlation between strength gains and hypertrophy, but just kind of baseline how big are your muscles versus how strong are you so like cross-sectional versus longitudinal if you look at the cross-sectional relationship between muscle size and strength uh, in untrained populations you tend to see a correlation coefficient somewhere in the neighborhood of about an r value of like 0.7 give or take Uh, and for trained populations you tend to see correlations uh, from like 0.8 to 0.9 plus, like generally, and, and so like these were trained lifters, you would expect a, a pretty strong correlation between vastus lateralis thickness and both squat and leg press strength. And that just didn't exist in this study, uh, which again, doesn't mean anyone did anything wrong, but it's 
Uh, it's very atypical. Uh, and so long story short, I personally wouldn't cite this study as conclusively demonstrating that people with hypertrophy goals should do periods of near max training to improve growth, uh, both because it's the first study with these findings, which do contradict quite a bit of other literature, uh, and because there were some, again, like weird data issues that don't quite sit right with me. And to be clear, I'm not alleging any wrongdoing, like I'm not saying anyone like did anything fishy, uh, because sometimes data are weird purely by chance. But like the, the whole thing with science is we're, we're interested in generalizability, right? So we, uh, we gather a sample of people, we put them through something that should be representative of, of the sort of stimulus that we think people might impose in the real world. Uh, and then we generalize the results from our sample to our target population, which in this case is lifters. Uh, and the less representative the sample is of the target population you want to generalize to, the iffier it becomes to generalize. And so I, I basically think that <laughs> the data are weird enough that it makes me think that this population was maybe just like fundamentally different in some way <laughs> from like typical day-to-day -day lifters, which to me, like j just a priori makes me think that these data are are a bit less generalizable. Uh, so anyway, between the weird data and just the fact that these findings do uh, seem to directly contradict another study and indirectly contradict uh, two two different entire bodies of literature, um, you know, I I'm not saying that the results reported aren't results that actually happened, but I would want to see at least one and ideally multiple replications before I personally would want to put much stock uh, in the idea that to maximize hypertrophy, you need to do occasional super low rep max strength blocks. That makes sense. Good stuff. And, you know, it, it, it's one of those. It doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't do it in practice. It doesn't mean that it, that it, there can't be something there. It's just when when you're evaluating evidence, you know, throwing that link around is not like the end of the conversation. Like I have definitive conclusive proof that cannot be argued against. Correct. Yeah. Um, all right. Moving on. I I've got an interesting study here. Uh, this is something that I think the conclusion isn't going to be surprising, but I still think the numbers are pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, we've talked about sleep quite a bit on the podcast uh, for good reason. I know I do it most nights. You do it generally fewer nights than I do, but it's important. Uh, sleep has been tied to everything good, <laughs> basically, like feeling good, cognitively and physically performing well. Recovering. It's strongly associated with not feeling sleepy. Correct. Absolutely. So sleep is important. Uh, people that sleep well do a, have better results in training programs. They have better results with diets. It's just a good thing to get adequate sleep. So this study, uh, the title was Caloric and macronutrient intake and meal timing responses to repeated sleep restriction exposures separated by varying intervening recovery nights in healthy adults. So the idea was um, they had 35 participants uh, who did this study, and th there were two baseline nights where, where they got an idea of kind of just their general uh, food consumption habits when they're sleeping plenty. So uh, these two baseline nights, they spent 10 hours in bed. 
And then that was followed by a, a few different uh, types of sleep restriction intervention. So on a sleep restricted night, they were only spending four hours in bed. Uh, so not necessarily four hours of sleep versus 10 hours of sleep, but four hours in bed versus 10 hours in bed. And I would, be, I would assume, so these uh, sleep restriction periods were five nights in a row. I bet by the end of that, four hours in bed is probably 3.99 hours of sleep. <laughs> like the second, I know for me, the second I hit the pill, I'd probably be completely out. Oh, yeah. But um, anyway, so they, they had these two different five-day periods where for those five days straight, they were only spending four hours per night in bed. Uh, and they looked at having different amounts of time intervals between those five-day periods. So like some people did a five-day sleep restriction period, then one recovery night, and then the second five-day sleep restriction period. Other people, instead of having that one-day recovery between, they had a three-day recovery, and then others had a five-day recovery. And they were interested in that. I'm not going to talk much about that because ultimately the results indicated that recovery period didn't matter basically at all. Um, but the thing that jumped out to me, this is like a very quick research review, but like you would expect based on the previous research and just based on personal experience and anecdote, like if I'm sleep restricted, I eat more. Yeah. As someone who has been tired before makes me hungry. Yeah. I mean, I, and I have less restraint with my diet. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm much more likely to not only be more hungry, but also to be like, you know what? None of my goals actually matter to me now that I think about it. <laughs> I'm just going to eat like whatever feels good at the time. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so this is crazy. So compared to baseline, when participants were sleep restricted and they documented their food intake throughout these various periods, they increased their daily caloric intake by 527, uh, 527 calories per day, which is insane. That is so much. That's a lot of calories. They increased their saturated fat intake by seven grams. Okay. Like, I'm not that worried about that. Decrease their protein intake as well. So, like, I, I do notice when I am sleep restricted, yes, I eat more. I do tend to skimp on protein a little bit more. So, like, this is one of those studies where I intuitively it made sense. But, man, that number is just absolutely remarkable. Well, the, their total protein intake probably increased, right? Um, cause it, it, yeah, it says yeah. it decreased as a percentage of, of calories. Yeah. So, so they, yeah, but they ate a shit ton more calories. <laughs> that is true. Yes. But, uh, but, but you can get in a sense that it's not like they took their, their exact same food selections and just ramped it up. Yeah. Th there's a little bit of a, of a skewing of the food choices as well. Yeah. They, they didn't say, man, it's so hard to keep my eyes open. Let's eat some chicken breast. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Anyway, I, th I thought that number was just absolutely baffling. So increase their daily caloric intake by 527 calories per day, uh, along with some of those changes in food preferences, right? So a little more saturated fat, a little bit less relative protein intake per, mm -hmm. per calorie consumed. Um, another thing they noticed, and this again makes a lot of sense uh, just based on anecdote, the variability in this was remarkable. So what, what they found was the... The change in calorie intake within a person was pretty consistent. So it's not like this is just lazy tracking that was crappy. Like these people had two different restriction periods. So they could actually look at like how consistent was your response to these restriction periods. 
But the change in daily caloric intake from baseline to sleep restriction ranged from negative 305 calories per day to 1,639 calories per day. So like some people were like, you know what? And I would imagine, because I've had many experiences of sleep restriction, you ever get to that point where you're so sleep deprived that you almost like, you almost feel sick and you're like, I don't think I could even eat right now. Yeah, that that was uh that was me the first night in Iceland, remember? Yeah, 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 where you're just like I I'm so sleep deprived that I can't stomach a meal. Like yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Like some people have that that response naturally to to sleep restriction. And then other so like yeah, I'm going to reduce my calories by 305 per day. But other people the, the biggest increase that they saw was almost 1,640 calories per day. Oh, yeah. Th- that was like me our second night in Iceland. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's just absolutely remarkable to to not just see the, the average uh, response, which was a very notable increase in calorie intake. I mean, 527 calories per day is substantial, but also to see that variation. And those numbers, I should be clear, are from the first five-day exposure of sleep restriction. The second exposure, the, the results were actually even a little bit more variable. So the the lowest, uh, or, or I guess the largest reduction in calorie intake was about 515 calories per day. And somebody increased their calorie intake by almost 1,990 calories per day. Like, And, and that that's over a five-day period, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so they're averaging an increase of 2,000 calories a day. Yeah, I mean, as long as I'm <laughs> interpreting this correctly. Um, and yeah, which is, I mean, just absolutely remarkable because when you look at the, the, the typical intake of these folks, uh, I mean, that's, that's almost just like saying, you know, all those meals I normally eat, I'm going to double all of them. Yeah. Like, I mean, because it's not like they came in and they're like, you know, they, they found the one group of people who happened to be dreamer bulking and everybody was averaging, you know, 4,200 calories per day. This wasn't a sample of, you know, competitive strongmen at the international level who are all eating, you know, 4,000 calories per day. It's just normal folks who are eating, you know, 2,300 calories a day. And it's like, yeah, you didn't let me sleep and now I'm going to eat double that. Like, it, it's pretty crazy. Now, I, I would expect at a certain point, eventually, you'd probably ease into it. Like, I wouldn't expect that you would double your intake in perpetuity. I would expect that at some point, you kind of come back down a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, there's literally millions of natural experiments on this. Like, yeah, yeah. N- new parents don't gain like 50 pounds during <laughs> the first six months of their child's life. That would be, yeah, that would be quite, uh, quite unfavorable for sure. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, sleep restriction is bad news. It's not fun. I don't recommend it. Uh, it's definitely a good idea to get as much sleep as you can get away with. Um, now the next thing I wanted to mention, I'm just going to do one more very briefly. Uh, at some point I would like to dive even deeper into this and maybe do like a full blown research review. But since this is a research roundup segment, I did want to just note, keep an eye on lactate. I think lactate is, is going to be a topic where we get a lot more information over the next five or 10 years uh, about exactly what it's capable of doing. You know, the, the story of lactate is, uh, it's a true underdog story at its core. So lactate back in the day, everybody looked at lactate and was like, okay, 
Is it useless? Probably. Doing nothing valuable. And beyond that is the singular thing that totally screws us over during high intensity exercise. Like our kind of knee jerk reaction to what fatigue is during like really high intensity anaerobic stuff was like, you make this stuff called lactate. It sucks. It fatigues you. There's nothing good about it. It's just like a thing of physiology that we wish didn't exist. It's kind of the story of lactate. But then if you biopsy someone's muscle right after they do a Wingate test, it tastes like yogurt. What? That's not true. Okay. Because... Like yogurt tastes like, like yogurt because of the lactic acid. Fair enough. Okay. Th- that's the culinary joke for the day. Uh, but anyway, the lactate <laughs> story uh, changed. You know, we started to, to really look into it. I think uh, George Brooks, I would say, really kind of led the way if memory serves when it comes to uh, vindicating lactate a little bit. But we started to realize this is actually you know, a a fuel source and it's a substrate for gluconeogenesis and like lactate is part of the recycling process. And it's not just a waste product. It's a really valuable thing that, that should be valued, you know, uh, in terms of being able to continue sustaining exercise, especially during, you know, like repeated high intensity bouts and things like that. And now the story with lactate is getting even more interesting because people are starting to look at it as a signaling molecule. And so there was a new paper uh, within the past month or so called The Emerging Role of Lactate as a Mediator of Exercise-Induced Appetite Suppression. And this was kind of a short review paper, but they, they basically summarized some emerging concepts of how lactate might relate to uh, the suppression of appetite after exercise. So first of all, they pointed out there's some emerging evidence that lactate can inhibit the secretion of ghrelin uh, from from, uh, gastric cells. And so ghrelin is something that, you know, we'll eat a meal and ghrelin release will be quite low. Like we're good, we're full, it feels great. We're super happy about it. But after a while, a prolonged fasting period will start to get hungrier ghrelin production and release will start ramping up and eventually our brain will perceive that and say okay ghrelin's getting really high it's probably time to initiate a meal that's kind of what ghrelin does so if lactate truly can inhibit that production and secretion of ghrelin well that would be a pretty notable thing in terms of the acute hunger responses after exercise um They also, in this review paper, present some evidence that lactate can modulate some of the signaling cascades uh, of of all those neuropeptides in the hypothalamus. So um, when you look at the hypothalamus and the, uh, the regulation of appetite and food intake, there's a bunch of important neuropeptides in the hypothalamus. Uh, and these neuropeptides really dictate what we perceive as, you know, hunger and satiety. The hypothalamus is really calling the shots there. So anything that notably modulates uh, those signaling cascades related to all those really influential neuropeptides, that's going to be a pretty big deal in terms of hunger and appetite regulation as well. And then they also mentioned in this paper, there's some emerging evidence that lactate can uh, inhibit signaling through the ghrelin receptor itself in the hypothalamus. So the idea is that leptin 
would then not only be able to influence the production and secretion of ghrelin, but also the interaction between ghrelin and its receptor in the hypothalamus. And again, the hypothalamus is a key center that really regulates uh, hunger and appetite responses. So this is, to be clear, kind of an early stage review paper. It's like It's not like one of those things where we are telling the final story of lactate and putting together this you know, completely bulletproof rationale that summarizes everything lactate can do. This is kind of the, in the beginning stages where we're saying, interesting, we've got all this basic research, this kind of uh, more mechanistic stuff, some of the animal model stuff that's indicating that lactate seems to be capable of doing some interesting things here. And so this was kind of a let's touch base and kind of go through these emerging results type of review paper. So that's why I said, keep an eye on lactate. I do expect in the next few years, we're going to see more research related to lactate and, uh, and appetite. And I also expect we're going to see more stuff related to, uh, to lactate and hypertrophy uh, and anabolic signaling as well. So there have been other papers that have looked at lactate and how it affects uh, PGC-1 alpha signaling after exercise, uh, which dictates a, a number of kind of biochemical adaptations to training. Also looking at how lactate affects uh, acutely some anabolic signaling after exercise. So lactate is is kind of entering a, a new frontier of its, uh, its story here, where we're now, aside from looking at lactate as a nice part of the fuel recycling process. Now we're getting away from the whole energy substrate conversation and looking more at lactate as a signaling molecule, looking at, uh, you know, adaptations to high intensity exercise, looking at potentially uh, anabolic processes following exercise. And there is, by the way, you know, I mentioned that this is uh, largely looking at some basic research, some mechanistic stuff, but there is some applied stuff linking post-exercise lactate to things occurring after exercise that should impact uh, appetite. So there was a study not long ago, it was called Potential Involvement of Lactate and Interleukin-6 in the Appetite Regulatory Hormonal Response to an Acute Exercise Bout. And basically, they, they had eight, meal, uh, eight males do uh, four experimental sessions. So they did some moderate intensity exercise, some vigorous intensity, uh, like continuous exercise. So steady state, but pretty intense. They also did sprint interval training and then a control condition with no exercise. And they did find that the higher intensity stuff uh, in this applied setting did suppress ghrelin. uh, And they also found that uh, in some of those higher intensity sessions, energy intake was significantly reduced the day after the exercise sessions took place. So one of the things I was interested in is like, okay, well, maybe there is this acute signaling function that, you know, these acute effects on these different aspects of appetite regulation. But again, we're talking acute. So maybe five hours later, seven hours later, eight hours later, maybe they're compensating for that and consuming more calories, right? So maybe there's an acute reduction of energy intake or appetite and then later, shortly thereafter, we have a big rebound. But uh, at least within that, you know, next day time frame, it doesn't look like there is a notable uh, kind of compensatory increase in appetite, which is far from uh, 
painting the whole picture. Like it's not like, Oh cool. Then we're out of the woods there. Um, but at least it's promising, right? It, it at least dictates that we're not getting some kind of short term response in a couple hours that is, is going to be fully compensated for the next day, at least as far as these data w- would indicate. It's also important to note in that study that the, the post exercise change in blood lactate uh, was correlated with the area under the curve for ghrelin. So like within that study, they painted a pretty nice picture that uh, high intensity exercise, the, the different modalities they looked at did obviously impact the amount of lactate production. Uh, and that did appear to directly influence ghrelin. And it looked like, you know, the next day, even energy intake was reduced in some of those higher intensity exercise conditions. So there's a lot to be learned here. Um, but I, I do think it's at least promising some preliminary evidence that lactate might have an important role in modulating hunger and appetite. And that could be a thing that you could tentatively try to utilize and capitalize on. So if you are someone who's in a weight loss phase and uh, you know, you're, you're noticing that hunger is starting to become a little bit more of a struggle, I do think that there's at least enough there to say, hell, we're going to have to do some kind of exercise anyway, right? Like if we're really pushing hard in a weight loss phase, we probably have some degree of low intensity cardio or high intensity cardio. If you are truly just like, if you really can't decide which one you want to implement on a given day and you do happen to be struggling with hunger, I don't think it's the worst idea to say, well, maybe I'm going to lean a little bit more towards some high intensity work, some more glycolytic work, do some sprint intervals and see if maybe I get a nice little bonus uh, where some of this lactate production helps me manage my hunger, you know, in the hours or even the day after that exercise session. Of course, the main practical limiting factor to keep in mind there is if you're doing a whole bunch of really high intensity glycolytic stuff, well, that's going to make recovery pretty challenging, especially if you're in a big caloric deficit and you're doing a bunch of resistance training. So it's not like, oh, cool, that's an easy solution with no downsides. You know, there, there's uh, there's going to be a fine balance there where you maybe explore some lactate generating exercise bouts, maybe push your intensity a little bit higher, but you just got to be mindful of making sure that your recovery is going to be sufficient uh, as you incorporate those. But I do know a lot of people who they get to a point in a diet, they want to keep pushing further, but they don't really want to drop their calories anymore. And they tend to notice that some of the lower intensity steady state cardio, if anything, maybe exacerbates their hunger a little bit. And we do see uh, some literature that there's a lot of variability from person to person. Uh, but some people, if you if you have them do a bunch of low intensity steady state cardio, they do have a lot of compensation for that, either by reducing non-exercise activity or increasing uh, caloric intake. It's variable from person to person, but there are some people who, if you just ramp up their aerobic exercise a little bit, they pretty quickly find ways to compensate for that by either reducing energy expenditure or increasing food intake. So I think there is a certain segment of the population where this could potentially be utilized effectively in the course of a fat loss phase. And uh, do you know anything about the the lactate, uh, th- that connection between lactate and uh, anabolic signaling? Have you looked into any of that research? Uh, there was a mouse study that found it was, that, that it like directly stimulated muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, I mean, it's all for now seems to be pretty 
basic science stuff, like, you know, pretty preliminary stuff, a lot mm-hmm. of rodent models or even like in vitro work. But, uh, but yeah, lactate, like I said, I, I don't know if we know everything about it yet. Well, I'm certain that we don't know everything about it yet, but I think that's a story that is going to get increasingly interesting in the next five to 10 years. There was, there was a paper that came out, uh, I don't know, maybe like two months ago or so, uh, that looked at exogenous lactate infusion in humans, uh, following exercise, I think. Uh, give me one second. I'll find this. Yeah. While you're looking that up, there there is some evidence that lactate promotes differentiation of satellite cells, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast before. We've talked about how satellite cells fit into the whole hypertrophy story. There is some, some evidence that lactate, um, I'm pretty sure in an in vitro study, they basically treated cells with lactate they did see some increases in anabolic signaling and interestingly they they also had a, a treatment with lactate and caffeine that was actually even more promising in terms of some of the signaling they were looking at than lactate alone and then there was a, a in vivo study with uh with rats where they gave oral lactate with caffeine and what they found was an increase in muscle mass increased satellite cell activity and increased mTOR activity, but again, we're, we're talking about rodents there. Okay, uh, so I, I found the study. Um, so they had people do unilateral knee extension exercise, I think, uh, eight men, eight women, um, and while they were doing the exercise, they were receiving uh, an infusion into the exercising leg, either of a saline solution or a lactate solution. Uh, they did not find that the lactate in- infusion really did anything. Uh, so they looked at, uh, mTOR, they looked at, uh, uh, S6K1, like several other anabolic signaling molecules. Uh, they looked at muscle protein synthesis. So fractional synthetic rate over a 24 hour period post-exercise again, didn't really seem to do much. A caveat there is that, it didn't really seem like the exercise was that hard. Um, so post, post-exercise post blood lactate concentrations were 130% higher in the lactate trial, but that difference is three versus seven millimoles per liter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like three millimoles per liter of lactate, that's like resting levels, right? Yeah. So yeah, uh, they may have just not exercised hard enough to do right. much of anything. Uh, and, and also there was a big difference in blood lactate levels, um, but there wasn't uh, in terms of muscle lactate levels. So it was uh, 27 versus 32 millimoles per kg of dry weight. Um, so yeah, th- that didn't really seem to pan out, but it it's, you know, if, if one were hypothesizing that actual muscle lactate levels were the thing that made that made the difference didn't seem like infusing lactate directly really much of it made it into the muscle combined with exercise that probably wasn't that challenging in the first place may not be surprising that it that it didn't really seem to do anything but anyway that's out there yeah and my main interest level is not in like ooh, can we put it in a bottle you know my main interest level is like how does this what are the implications for things like blood flow restricted training? What are mm-hmm. the implications for things like making those decisions of 
how much of my cardio should be high intensity versus low intensity or should I be, even if I'm not trying to lose fat, uh, should I still be incorporating some kind of glycolytic conditioning into my program? I'm more interested in the lactate we're actually generating in the active musculature. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. It should be plenty of, uh, interesting stuff on the horizon there. Yeah. I mean, like you have to assume that the lactate being generated in the active musculature is what matters because like, dude, otherwise the ticket to gains would just be like to do a ton of neck training until you wound up with sleep apnea and then like <laughs> you get fucking huge because your your lactate levels would be elevated for eight hours a day yeah well that, that would be really going all in on the on the idea <laughs> you'd probably be overeating by you know 500 calories a day at that point based on the previous study but I mean, uh, I honestly sleep apnea is sounding better and better all right. Do you want to do another? St- it might be time for us to wrap it up here. Uh, do you want to do the muscle memory? Yeah, thing? I'll, I'll, I'll make this pretty quick. Cool. Go ahead. Um, yeah. So we recently republished a mass article on Stronger by Science uh, about whether the w- whether a myonuclear mediated mechanism of muscle memory. That's way too much alliteration. Uh, basically, whether. Uh, something related to the myonuclei was likely to be the the primary underlying mechanism of muscle memory. Um, and the, the article concluded that, you know, maybe it plays some role, but it's probably not the driving factor. Uh, and one of the reasons why is that myonuclei permanence probably doesn't exist to the degree that maybe people thought it did. Um, anyway, if you're interested, you can read the article. I think we talked about this on the last podcast episode, too. But anyway, um, so I wanted to talk about muscle memory a little bit more since that should be fairly fresh uh, on the audience's mind. So when I shared the Stronger by Science article on Instagram, friend of the pod Alex Coliari Turner uh, commented like, hey, have you seen the recent muscle memory paper from Maroc's lab? I said, no, I hadn't. So uh, he told me what to search. I checked it out and it was very, very cool. So the honestly, though, what does Alex know about this shit? To be honest, substantially more than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So the the title of the study is uh, "Muscle Memory, Myonuclear Accretion, Maintenance, Morphology, and MicroRNA Levels with Training and Detraining in Adult Mice" by Maroc et al. Um, And so. I'm only going to be focusing on the microRNA part of the study. They also did look at satellite cells and myonuclei a bunch. This was a super, super cool and in-depth paper uh, that would probably take 20, 30 minutes to do justice. I'm only going to be talking about probably the biggest headline finding of the study, but if if this is an area of the literature that interests you, I'd I'd highly recommend checking out the paper. Um, But yeah, so basically... uh, This study suggested that microRNA could uh, potentially be a mechanism for muscle memory. Uh, And so let's start with what is microRNA? So microRNA, as the name suggests, is RNA. Uh, It's generally coded for by about uh, 22 base pairs of nucleotides. Fun piece of trivia in case that ever comes up at Pub Trivia. Uh, and essentially what microRNA does is fuck with gene expression. So 
Um, you, you know, if it's been a while since you've taken a biology class, DNA is quote unquote read uh, to make messenger RNA. And then uh, that process is called transcription. And then messenger RNA is quote unquote read by ribosomes to form proteins. Uh, and that's called translation. So uh, microRNA basically comes in between transcription and translation. Um, so it interferes with the messenger RNA before it can be read by ribosomes and translated into protein. So basically, it, it, microRNA will have complementary base pairs to the messenger RNA. So you know, gene transcription occurs, messenger RNAs are going out, they say, ah, I'm going to go find a ribosome and I'm going to code for a protein. And then the microRNA comes in and says, nope, our base pairs match, I'm going to bind to you and then you're never going to make it to that ribosome and the protein that you're trying to code for isn't going to get coded for. So it, it basically just like uh, cock blocks the translation process, <laughs> more or less. Th that's what microRNA does. Uh, and Th They put it that way in the paper, did they? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, that's, that's how it's typically referred to in most textbooks. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, so there is a particular microRNA, uh, MIR1 or microRNA R1. Uh, and it is a specific microRNA that interferes with broadly anabolic slash hypertrophic gene expression uh, related primarily to the IGF-1 AKT pathway. Uh, and so basically, if you have higher levels of MIR1, that's going to interfere with hypertrophy. And if you have lower levels, that's going to be more permissive of hypertrophy because you basically have less of this specific microRNA that's, that's messing up the IGF-1 AKT pathway. Um, and so... Uh, my, uh, MIR1 levels are known to decrease when a hypertrophic stimulus is presented, uh, which seems to be uh, something that, that, again, like I said, is playing a permissive role in hypertrophy, basically getting out of the way to, to let these signaling pathways uh, progress more smoothly. And so in this study, what they did uh, is they had uh, four-month-old mice. They had several groups. So one group uh, started at four months old, underwent two months of progressive overload. Uh, and so what they did is really cool. Actually, they used weighted wheel running. So mice love to run on wheels and they figured out a way to add resistance to the wheel to kind of mimic resistance training. Uh, so they progressively overloaded the mice with weighted wheel running for about two months. Uh, one group trained for two months and then they just killed them uh, to, to analyze all of the things they wanted to analyze. Another group trained for two months and then was uh, detrained for six months. So they were harvested at one year. Uh, then they had another group that was the first control group. It did not exercise, but it was harvested at six months old to match the first group of, of mice that started at four months old, trained for two months, and then were killed. Uh, and then they had another control group, which was untrained for 12 months to match the the detraining group. Uh, so basically they had two completely untrained groups of six and 12 month old 
mice. Uh, and then they had a recently trained batch of six-month-old mice and a detrained batch of 12-month-old mice. And they looked, again, at a lot of different things, myonuclei, satellite cells. They looked at changes in the shape of myonuclei, which I didn't know that's something you could do. That's super cool. Uh, but the the thing they came away with that seemed like it might be uh, an interesting candidate um to explain the, the muscle memory phenomenon is changes in microRNA R1 levels. So uh, they decreased when the mice initially trained, and then when the, uh, the, the mice that trained for two months and then took six months off, after not training for six months, uh, their microRNA R1 levels were basically the same as the mice that had just finished training for two months. So it seems like something that is depressed when when rodents undergo training and then stay depressed for a long time. And you might hear, ah, six months, that's not that long. That's like a quarter of a mouse's lifespan. That's like 20, 25 years in human terms. Yeah. Uh, so, so very long-term suppression of microRNA R1 levels. Um, and so since higher levels of MIR1 kind of provide a break to the hypertrophy process if they're lowered by training and stay low even after detraining. That could be something that's permissive of more rapid hypertrophy when, uh, I was going to say people start training again, when rodents start training again. Uh, so obviously that's the big caveat here. This is a mouse study. Uh, but to counter that, I would say the... Uh, the, the myonuclear mediated mechanism that everyone got excited about, that was also based on evidence from a mouse study. So, you know, uh, fight mouse studies with mouse studies. Uh, so anyway, that's obviously a big caveat. I'd want to see if these uh, results replicated in humans, obviously. Uh, but yeah, this, uh, this seems to be another pretty interesting, exciting candidate uh, that could potentially do some of the work to explain the phenomenon of muscle memory. Good stuff. I, I think we rounded up a substantial amount of research for this episode. That was quite a roundup. So you are now, uh, listeners, you are now fully informed and at the cutting edge of science. Uh, now to play us out, I basically just want to vent a little bit. I'm pretty upset. So on a previous episode, Greg, you, you told us that essentially crabs are not crabs. There are a lot of things masquerading as crabs that have just kind of adapt. They have become in the form of a crab, but they are not truly crabs necessarily. Correct. Now, I was in your home, I think, when I learned a couple years ago that I had never had maple syrup in my entire life. Ooh. During editing, you should put a trigger warning there for our Canadian listeners. Why? Just the, the idea that I had not had it? Correct. Or, yeah. Okay. Because uh, I'm, I'm a little bit self-conscious about the way I pronounce syrup. I, I've never, I grew up saying syrup and then everybody started saying syrup. So I've adopted it, but I feel like it's wrong. It you, doesn't feel right. You can say whatever you want. Anyway, so apparently in America, everything that they're like branding as syrup and they put like pancakes on the label, I guess I never noticed they actually, they don't actually call it maple syrup. They just say like, hey, you know, it's like the, the stuff you put on pancakes and it tastes kind of like maples or something like I don't know but it's just not real and I had no idea it's just like corn syrup with like caramel flavored yeah. or colored coloring and stuff but it's not maple syrup and I had no idea 
so now the the final blow that has just really uh taken the wind out of my sails pumpkin pie is honestly one of my favorite desserts it might be my favorite dessert and it's you know america celebrated thanksgiving like a week ago it's one of the popular thanksgiving desserts pumpkin pie and one of my clients brought this to my attention and and she mentioned that it was from a book called brave tart iconic american desserts by stella parks but she basically let me know that like apparently pumpkins are kind of an awful way to make pumpkin pie and that most people if they just just did like a, a blinded taste test would much prefer squash pie over pumpkin pie like apparently it's a much better candidate for making that type of pie in terms of its texture and flavor and that's not news apparent it was news to me but apparently for the longest time in america they were like just selling everybody like hey take this pumpkin puree you're gonna love it make pie out of it and the whole time it was just some kind of non-pumpkin squash that uh, they're like just whatever we'll call it pumpkin because nobody wants to eat squash pie but if we call it pumpkin they're gonna like the pie apparently the fda the food and drug administration heard about this and cracked down and said hey you got to stop mislabeling this squash as pumpkin because it's technically not a pumpkin and then like Libby's who makes a bunch of canned pumpkin puree they like got into the laboratory like Frankenstein style and created this thing that they could call a pumpkin but it's kind of like in the gray area the biggest thing I learned is that there's not a lot of science dictating what you can call a pumpkin and what you can call a squash it's a very murky gray area but the bottom line is within the last couple years I've learned that none of the crabs I cherish are actually crabs None of the maple syrup I loved as a child was actually maple syrup. And I thought I liked pumpkin pie and I don't, I've probably never had actual pumpkin pie. So I'm just kind of frustrated. We can make pumpkin pie. That might be fun. But now I'm learning that it, it kind of sucks. And like, you'd much prefer to have squash pie. So it's like, I thought I loved this thing that I actually probably wouldn't even like that much. Life's tough, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I saw that you had this in the outline and I wanted to, shake your faith in our food system even more Oh, i'm just seeing this in the outline you taught me this already but yeah this is awful yeah so uh this first one i think a lot of people are aware of uh a lot of parmesan cheese isn't actually parmesan or i guess like the the platonic ideal of parmesan so so parmesan is a term in the american food system that can mean pretty much anything uh when people think parmesan what they probably have in mind uh like the core product that it's all based on is called parmigiano reggiano uh i'm i'm sure i didn't pronounce that with enough gusto uh for our italian listeners i apologize uh i am incapable of attempting to do a a proper italian pronunciation without sounding very racist uh (laughs) So it's Parmigiano-Reggiano, and that's the best you're going to get. Anyway, so that is the real deal. It is made in a specific region of Italy, and any similar cheese made outside of that region of Italy is not Parmigiano-Reggiano. And so most of what is sold as Parmesan in America is not Parmigiano-Reggiano. And the, the levels of it differ from things that are decent simulacrums. So, uh... You know, basically cheese made um, via a similar process, but outside of that region of Italy. 
Um, you know, and it's going to taste slightly different because like it's going to be exposed to slightly different bacteria and it's aged in different cellars, but like, you know, it's, it's like a similar cheese product. Uh, and that's also like a very small minority of the market. Um, most of the stuff that you would buy in like a shaker bottle in, uh, in, an, in an American supermarket either doesn't have anything that could even charitably be called Parmesan cheese or only <laughs> like a tiny, tiny little amount. Um, basically, any relatively dry, salty cheese, you can just fucking call Parmesan uh, and it's fine. And so, yeah, like, yeah, I, I eat Parmesan pretty regularly, but I, I get it from the little shaker bottle in the in the grocery store aisle. If you told me that, like, oh, we did an analysis, it's 80 percent sawdust. I'd believe it. Wait. So are, were you saying that with knowledge of the sawdust scandal? I I, I must have heard about it and then decided I made it up because I was now that I am being called out. And that actually, I think I have heard that it was a thing, but I assumed it was not true. Yeah, so the the two biggest sellers of Parmesan cheese are uh, Great Value, like the Walmart brand, uh, and Kraft Foods. And uh, the the Great Value brand got in trouble oh, maybe like three or four years ago um, for having a product, product that they labeled 100% Parmesan cheese. And, and calling it Parmesan cheese is not what they got in trouble for. It was, it was like, I, I think it was a mixture of like pecorino and like dehydrated mozzarella or something like that, uh, the actual cheese. But it was 10% uh, cellulose wood pulp, which like the thing is that actually totally makes sense because uh, if you don't coat the cheese in anything, it's gonna just stick together. Like you, you need something to keep those little like pre-graded particles separated uh, for, for a long shelf life. Uh, but anyway, they, they got in trouble for calling it 100% Parmesan because it was like 10% cellulose by weight. Yeah. Uh, and Kraft had gotten in trouble for the same thing like the year prior. And I don't know, I, I, like I, I don't think they changed their product. I think they just changed the labeling because they're yeah. like, look, we got to have the fucking wood pulp in it. Like we need the cellulose. Otherwise the cheese is going to stick to each other. Um, but yeah, it's 0% Parmigiano Reggiano. Well, I'm, I'm going to assume that their compromise to get through that scandal was not to just change it to 90% Parmesan related material. <laughs> I'm going to assume they went with something else. Yeah. I think they just started calling it Parmesan cheese and that was fine. Just call it really good Parmesan. Yeah. Period. Uh, so yeah, most Parmesan is not the real Parmesan. Uh, the next is some of the fish that you would get in in restaurants primarily is not the fish you think it is. Uh, so there was a study by a group called Oceana, which best I can tell is just like a general ocean interest group, I guess. Uh, the like big a, ocean lobby. Yeah, like yeah. it's an it's an ocean advocate advocacy group so they ran a study from 2010 to 2013 um you know basically going around and finding fish that's like labeled as a particular type of fish and doing dna analysis to see like is this the fish they say it is um and it was mislabeled like close to half the time and the two worst ones 
were uh, Red Snapper, which was mislabeled 87% of the time, and White (laughs) Tuna or Albacore, which was mislabeled 84% of the time. So uh, the things that were being labeled Red Snapper were basically just like any other type of white fish because Red Snapper is a white fish. Uh, I guess people think it sounds fancy and they can't tell it apart from tilapia, but tilapia is really cheap. And so oftentimes... Uh, you'd go to a restaurant and think you were getting red snapper and it was actually just tilapia uh, or just like some other cheaper white fish. Um, and then the the albacore is even worse because it was being substituted for a fish called escolar um, or you might also know it as snake mackerel. Um, and anyway, so uh, the thing about escolar is it has a particularly high wax content in its meat. So it, it has like some some very interesting adaptations that allow it to uh, metabolize and incorporate waxes into its uh, into its cells at much higher proportions than most fish. Uh, and the thing is, like, it tastes generally fine, and it's not going to hurt you in small doses. And so, like, if you think you're getting albacore tuna, uh, and you know you're eating maybe like two or three total ounces of fish, you'll probably be fine. Uh, but Escalar is like pretty well known to give people explosive diarrhea if they eat more than about like six ounces of it, give or take. Um, yeah. So that's <laughs> that's just something to be aware of. Uh, yeah, if, if you go to, and so uh, the the mislabeling issues, both with these fish and just like fish in general, um, didn't seem to be very widespread in stores. So if you go to a store, a supermarket. Uh, and they say like, hey, you're buying whatever fish. It is it is probably actually that fish. Uh, but restaurant menus, uh, general restaurant menus, and specifically sushi restaurants, um, mislabeled fish way, way more often than, than like stores and supermarkets did. So um, yeah, be skeptical and especially be skeptical of things on menus called Red Snapper or Albacore because there's like a five and six chance that they're not. Yeah, and the really annoying thing about that, given that it's fish, is like some people make some pretty calculated decisions about what type of fish they're going to eat mm-hmm. because of the, you know, for this type of fish, there's more, you know, environmental contaminants, more more heavy metal accumulation than that kind of fish. Or, or so, if you're just like really tapped into food supplies, like overfishing issues. Yeah, so like a lot of people do make very specific decisions about what kind of fish they want to eat. The fact that there would be... Uh, mislabeling to that type of extent for certain fish is pretty uh, pretty frustrating. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, and then the last one, which like honestly, I'm not mad about because uh, you know it, it's mostly just like screwing people who are who are trying to be fancy but also cheap uh, is truffle oil. So if you purchase truffle oil in the store and it's not like a trillion dollars, it's not truffle oil. Um, so the vast, vast majority of the products that are marketed as truffle oil, which I don't know how the fuck they get away with this. Like, th- th- this strikes me as kind of like the pumpkin thing that the FDA would step in and say something about. But most things that are labeled as truffle oil are literally just grapeseed oil with a specific molecule added. Uh, so it's called 2,4-dithiapentane, uh, and it's one of the like primary, like very pungent flavor or like scent molecules in truffles. Uh, And so, 
you know, like it, it gives you a truffle-esque hit while also completely neglecting every other scent and flavor compound in truffles. Um, but yeah, like it's uh, it's literally not truffle oil. Like most of them contain 0% truffle. Uh, and I mean, honestly, like th- th- this is one of those instances where like price is probably a pretty good guide. Uh, just statistically speaking, for 99.9% of our audience, if you see a product labeled truffle oil and you can afford it without taking out a loan, it's not truffle oil. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just like literally something else. Yeah, I mean, that, that's like what I used to always tell people when uh, when amino spiking and nitrogen spiking and protein was like very prevalent. I was like, well, listen, if you're buying a finished delivered product with like a sponsored athlete on the label that paid for marketing in your favorite magazine and they're selling it at less than the raw material cost of whey itself. <laughs> I'm skeptical. Like that's either an extremely altruistic supplement company that is just very happy to take huge losses on that. Or there's not that much protein in it. Yeah. You know, you be the judge. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that does it for this episode. As always, uh, thanks so much for listening and we will be back in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.